Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, editor of the Toolkit, and my guests today are director Sam Mendes and cinematographer Roger Deakins talking about their new film, 1917. Uh, this is a film about two young British soldiers during World War One that must deliver a message across the battlefield um, to stop their compatriots from walking into a huge trap um, that could result in uh, thousands of people dying. I think IndieWire readers, listeners, listeners to this podcast probably know the conceit about this film. Uh, it's been talked about for quite a while now. Um, this film was designed to feel like it is one long, continuous shot. Of course, what we're talking about here is a series of very elaborate, long, one-take shots that um, are stitched together, matched, and uh, stitched together. Um, but it's a remarkable collaboration between cinematographer and director, so I'm super happy to have both of them here to talk about not just the uh, how they how they did this film, but, but why and some of the choices that they made based on how we want to experience it. Uh, it is the Monday before Christmas. Uh, lots of good movies coming out over the holidays, 1917 being one of them, uh, you know, but also Greta Gerwig's uh, Little Women. Uh, we're going to drop a podcast with Greta the day after Christmas, um, and then we're going to play over the holidays, catch up. Uh, got uh, Olivia Wilde talking about Booksmart, which came out in May, and Lulu Wong uh, talking about her wonderful film The Farewell, which came out this summer as well. So, uh, you know, we're still, uh, we had Tarantino and Richardson on last Friday, so please uh, please subscribe. I'm sure over the holidays you're catching up on some of the better films of the year. And, uh, uh, well, to be honest, most of those filmmakers came here to talk about them. So um, please catch up on the podcast as well. I know the question that everybody, you know, why one take? But I'm really curious now that I've seen it even more than why one take, what is it about how we are in relationship to these two boys and their journey, you know, where we are as an audience in relationship to it? Because it's not just an idea of an experience, but there's also about where we are in that sense of of, of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, we talked about it very early on. And one of the things that, in a sense, almost the once Roger had read the script, the only big question was well why one shot exactly as you say and it forced us pretty consistently throughout prep to discuss what it is that you would normally how you would normally approach this story if you were doing it in a conventional way and what the big differences were so you know you you have to acknowledge the normal filmmaker grammar the filmmaking grammar that goes into a film so you let's say cut wide for a geography shot cut tight for an emotional shot um you know maybe you'd be in a profile two shot for a conversation or you do close-ups or over the shoulders so um but we wanted to have that same degree of being able to get in to the characters emotionally and also out for the geography and for the landscape to see them their tiny figures in a in a vast destroyed landscape of the war um but without cutting um and we wanted to use the fact that we were only ever looking in one direction to add often tension as to what we weren't seeing. So the big conversation with, with Roger really was about how the camera moved and when um, and what determined its movement. Because obviously the bad version of this was to walk behind the two characters and just see the back of their heads or to be facing the front of their faces and pull them through these landscapes. But somehow we wanted the relationship between them, the land and the camera to be this constantly evolving and flowing uh, shape. Um, and at the same time, we didn't want the audience to think about what the camera was doing. We, we weren't going to go through the 
you know, uh, the eye of a needle with a camera. We weren't going to go through a, a glass window. We weren't going to pass through a wall. We weren't going to do stuff that was a bit perhaps self-advertising. Because mm-hmm. um, you can feel a camera after a while when it hasn't cut. If you if you if you if you aren't yeah. reframing, if you aren't if the if the dynamic isn't changing. And, to some and equally, you can also feel the operator if it's constantly handheld. So we didn't want that either. We didn't want it to be jiggling around. We didn't want to pan back and forth between two people in a conversation which really is a sort of poor man's, we, we would rather cut, but as we're not cutting in this movie, we're just going to pan back and forth. So all these things emerged organically as a part of a discussion that, with, with, with Roger in very early prep. And then we started storyboarding it. And often we would storyboard sequences four, five, six times. I mean, I think the canal, the crossing of the canal, we may have storyboarded, we certainly had five or six different versions of that until we found what we felt was the right one. Um, and in the end, what's there is relatively straightforward and subtle, but it took a long time to get to that. And we went through some cruder versions and then some simpler versions, you know, and we found in the end what was the language of this film. And that was in microcosm what it was like for every um, sequence in the movie. Because to a certain degree, with these conversations starting early, you're building trenches, right? You're building your battlefield, right? The, and, and so I imagine, Roger, you're able to, as you're having these conversations, part of this is also, it's not just a normal location scouting, it's also kind of like how we're going to build our battlefield, where we're going to put a trench, right? And so you're, it, in a weird way, it's 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 kind of a production, you're kind of getting in before they actually do the production design work and you're able to kind yeah. of... It's I mean, not, now you're just walking in and it's like, here's your hotel room. This is how, how we're going to do this. Yeah, well, Sam said we, we started off storyboarding, but I don't think the storyboards were really where we settled. That was a way of us thinking, what is the style of the film? You know, how much do we want to be in the claustrophobia of the trenches if we're behind the guys? Uh, you know, what, what the style and the feel was and what the camera was doing to help add to the story. Um, but say, but well, that was what the drawings were. But then we, then we did a lot of rehearsals with the actors, so we could get a sense of the distances we needed. So Sam got a sense of the timing of the dialogue with the distance of the trench, because we couldn't just build a trench. I mean, how long is a trench? And then we had to figure. Then we did bird's eye views, like schematics of the camera positions that we thought, and then basically the sets were designed around where the camera was going to go you know so it was a much different process than i'm used yeah very and me too i mean it was unlike anything i've ever done we had two scripts in a way we had the conventional script that you would look at and go yeah that's a movie script and then we had another script with which was about 40 maps uh, with every location drawn and the journey the dis you know the distances the journeys that each of the actors took and the crucially the position of the camera and they they were handed to the crew before we started shooting they had a script of the camera moves in their hand now sometimes we change it but we didn't change it that much because we we had looked at it from so many different angles either in our own minds discuss, discussing it all practically on location that we really didn't change things very much and when we did we had to stop and talk about it because it, it had an impact on all sorts of other things. Um, the scariest bit is when you get to open land. You know, Roger was very good about, we've got to talk about no man's land because no man's land, if we're not careful, you know, it could have just been a bunch of mud, you know. But uh, I think that's one of the sequences I'm I'm happiest with in the film because you know you have to both follow them through it and it's a series of very very small details that keeps the place alive and particular 
but at the same time you're also having to bear witness to one of the greatest uh one of the most horrifying um fields of war uh killing grounds that there's ever been in the history of global conflict um and in that respect you you have to sort of acknowledge um that you you can't use it um in a in a in a a way that's self-serving um you have to somehow uh honor the people that fell the hundreds of thousands of people who fell in in that land and and many of whom still buried there it felt like in that section that was one where we're, we want to narrow our view of what's it's like we have a little crater here we have a little section here we have a little heel here mm-hmm. not the like pull back and see it right it's kind mm-hmm. of experiencing the horror of that mud and that stuff in the, in the smaller detail level yeah. is that yeah well, i think you always we were always trying to keep it what were the characters experiencing mm-hmm. you you never even when the camera comes out to observe them a little bit more of a distance within the space we were very cautious that it didn't feel we were suddenly, you know, being observational. We still wanted to feel this. We were seeing things that the characters were seeing and experiencing it with the characters, you know. Because in that case, by the way, most people listen to this podcast after they see this movie. And so we're double dropping this on Christmas. But in this case, they are fearful that there's stuff out there. They don't know what's out there. And so that ability, if you had ever pulled back and showed that. Yeah, the, personally, the, I think a lot of films show too much. I mean, yeah. you know, you think of the. For me, the great films that where you experience something with the characters is like you think of Das Boat, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. or something like that. And it's the claustrophobia that a film that I gave and the tension of the camera moving through that submarine. I actually thought about that quite a lot when we were doing the trenches. But it's interesting because you, you didn't, we specifically talked about not showing the audience what the actors, the characters couldn't see. We only see what they can see, um, sometimes not even as much as they see. Um, and I think that that's very important. Not that we we weren't we were conscious of always being very present tense. We don't want to see ahead too far. If we if we see ahead, it's what they see, but no more. Um, and and you know, it was a world in which they were blind. These these men in the trenches were blind. If they poked their head over the top of the trench, there was a likelihood that they were going to hit their a bullet in their head so they never looked over the the edge of the trench or they did very rarely they constructed systems of periscopes and other ways to look over um and even the trenches themselves were constructed along a sort of long snake-like crenellated uh structures so because if if uh, an enemy uh, uh you know soldier had dropped into the trench with a with a uh, machine gun they could have mown down if it's a straight line they could have just mown everybody down so they were you, you never could see very far and then there was the mist and then there's the mud so you 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 know it's a it's a war of blindness in many ways so you you have the construction where the first 20 minutes they're almost blind and they don't know what's more than about 50 yards ahead and then suddenly they're cut adrift in this huge landscape which is the land that's been fought over which in which they see for miles and the level of destruction suddenly becomes available to them. I think this is somewhat related, you know, in that sense that, you know, you were the first ones to shoot on this new RELF and that's, and that's a size thing, but I'm curious, Roger, because I, I had seen that you had said this because I think it's your first large format film. Is that correct? Is that the first, is this the first? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Why? Cause it's great that you've got this wonderful small camera, but why, which you had to have for this, but why did why did 1917 um, need to be large format? Well, I mean, 
partly it's like slightly higher resolution. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for me, it was the size of the sensor leads to a certain depth of field. Mm -hmm. So that com combined with, uh, we basically shot on one lens, a 40 mil lens, not exclusively, but just all but a couple of shots is on a 40 mil lens. You get what I think is a, it's the best reflection of the photographs I've seen from the First World War. There's a slightly kind of, I say, shallower depth of field and it's not the 18 mil wide angle that you see everything. It's slightly claustrophobic and it's more personal. You know, you shoot a close up and it, I don't know this. I, I don't know. You just relate to it. I feel like my, that was also it's somewhat related because it feels like the reason I brought it up here is because it, just so our audience understands is that when you're on a 35 millimeter sensor, a piece or negative, a 40 millimeter lens has a certain um, angle of view. When you're on a larger sensor, that 40 now has uh, has the width of, of like a 21, 20. No, something no, no. It's about it's about not even a 32. It's somewhere in a 35 to a 32. So, so, but you have the but you so you're getting this shallower depth of field, and you also are able to do these Slightly. close ups that yeah. aren't feeling like all right wide distorted lens. and yeah. Because there's that shot in the um, I just think about that in the even in um, when he's in the back of that wagon, and he's in with all those men. And I, I'm sure the camera's right up there. And just to be able to have that portraiture of him there and not have that kind of, yeah. is it, it seems like it's so important to the language of this film and being able to. to yeah, absolutely. It was actually probably, if we were, we were honest with ourselves, Roger, it was probably one of the most important decisions we made. Or yeah. rather, you know, I, I was I was led there by Roger, but it was a very it was one or two photographs that we found from the period and and. and Roger, it's this. This is the look, and and you know, if you were to be about talk about contemporary movies, you know, a movie which was pure subjectivity, like *Son of Saul*, for example, which I thought was unbelievable, mm -hmm. but was shot on very long lenses, because you're constantly, you're every everyone was other than where you were looking was out of focus. The depth of field was very very shallow, and then you know, on the other end of the spectrum is a sort of *Revenant* type movie where you're very very wide lenses and and close-ups are on the whole distorted, and you have to accept that. Um, that that it was neither of those things. We 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 talked about those those worlds of the way that we that those movies and others of similar ilk had used lenses, and this felt like our movie. And I felt that we okay. Well, I think we're going to use probably longer lenses on the following sequences, and we never really did, because it was working exactly as we wanted it to. Um, it has the intimacy, but on the other hand, you feel like you can see enough of the landscape but you never saw too much and it didn't distort. Um, and what Roger says about the depth of field is absolutely, I mean, about the depth of the image is is true. I mean, I found the image on this uh, this new Alexa remarkable. Um, I mean, and it's it's uh, it's pretty unforgiving at times, although it's it's not unforgiving on, on faces, which has been the case, I think, sometimes in the past. And particularly, obviously, we never shot in sunlight. So that 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 took that off the table. We weren't in extreme light. But um, luckily, you're dealing with 18 year olds. Uh, exactly. <laughs> good, the, good last shot, the last shot, the sun comes out. Yes, yes. Roger ordered the sun up for the last shot, and it worked. Very nice. You know, we're talking about the fact that you, you remove um, a cut and that ability to, to kind of reframe. And the thing, and I guess I'll, I'll throw this to Sam, you know, the thing that's amazing to me is we can talk about and, and at the Q&A that one example of going down the hill of how the heck you technically do this. But the thing that astounded me is that what Roger did was in the midst of all of this technical, how do we do this, the frame is still so precise. Mm -hmm. 
And that seems to be so vital to this because you're having to re you're having to essentially cut within a frame. You're having to reframe. You're having to do something like this. And so it's one thing for the camera to fly down a hill, go up a trench and out. But then to also, I imagine what you, the two of you, you've relied on in this collaboration is that preciseness. And to be able to lock in on that while doing all this was, is, is crazy to me. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. And I think that that is in large part the the particular mixture of the rigs that Roger selected and the fact that he himself was also operating them remotely. And, you know, he's not carrying the camera often, but he is he is operating it on wheels. And uh, so you have the thing, in a way, for me, it's best of both worlds because you have access all areas as far as the camera is concerned. Sometimes you're flying up in the air, as you say, and sometimes you're going down tiny trenches. But you have, you know, Roger is hands-on ultimately even though he's not actually got his hands on the specific camera so you you have you have that um but the the other thing is you know we you know we we made up our first collaboration was 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 a movie called jarhead and it was all handheld and it was on two cameras and we never have storyboarded anything and we never stopped moving really and um so we we perfectly we, we've worked both on that and then on a movie like skyfall where we were fighting in a sense the conventional at that time feeling that the way to contemporize Bond was to shoot it like Bourne, you know, was to throw a bunch of long lenses up and, and shoot it on multiple cameras. And we didn't do that. We went in the other direction and we, we, we made a much more classic looking film, I think, at that time. So we've, bon we've gone to both ends of the spectrum at various points, but we both felt that this was not a handheld film. Um, and having said that it's not rigid rigid frame we're not in in a kind of kubrickian you know absolutely rigid locked off frame it has got a movement to it and we do there are moments when you know on the trinity which is the largest steadicam rig or the dragonfly which was the tiny one it, it has the movement of of feet and breathing and steps which i like it's a soft handheld feeling at times but it's very subtle and at other times the frame is very very still and composed um so it it, it was in a kind of you know it, it it never felt arid and sort of bloodless and we didn't want it to feel like it was being controlled mechanically and i think that that one of the things i feel most um delighted about with the film is that 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 Roger found a way to do that in a way that was pleasing to both of us and and um, and and yet keep complete control over it which I think was remarkable. I got I got to say on that though. I mean I operated I mean, maybe over half of it on remote head because it was on a remote head but then we had a fantastic uh, steady cam operator Peter Kabakuti and a fantastic operator of this Rig called a Trinity, um, Charlie I've Resic. Seen that. That's that thing where, where you can kind of go yeah, up and down. Yeah, it's like a steady cam, yeah. but it's an arm. And and you know where the thing was picking. Anybody listening is going YouTube. You, you, there's no way that Roger could describe. You have to see this yeah. thing how it works. It's really it's very few people can use it. And yeah. Charlie is like amazing. But what we did, going back to what we're saying, we storyboard and then we did schematics of where we wanted the camera to go and the sort of sets and everything. But then we also shot. I mean, I was with a little point to shoot. We shot a lot of rehearsals. Mm with 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 the, with George and Dean and then I took frames out of that and put them next to the schematics so I could talk to Charlie and Pete mm -hmm. and Gary and Malcolm who were the grips who were carrying the camera and say this is what 
the framing we want. You know, this is where we want to be. It was that tightly worked out, really. So it wasn't just throwing them in. For, for the, the uninitiated, we had a ninja camera, the prime. <laughs> we had a samurai camera, which is the Trinity, and we had a sumo camera, which is the two grips carrying the camera on a rig. <laughs> well, you're, you're so, you've always been someone that wants their hands on the camera. You've been an operator. I, I apologize for my technical naivety here. Where, where, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Like when you say well, you're remoting, when you're well, that's one of the biggest challenges of the film because you, uh, you know, when you think they're coming out of the wood and going down to the farmhouse, or that, or George is running along the trench line and, and with the, you know, everybody charging the battle scene at the end, you think that is like you know, three hundred feet, four hundred feet, and sometimes they start six foot down in a trench. You think we're remotely, so it's all, you know, it's all radio controlled. So that was a huge, that was actually a huge issue, which um, my, my wife, James, actually dealt with more than I did and that actually managed to get that sorted out, you know, a couple of weeks before we started shooting, really, to make sure that, and, you know, I'm sitting... There had the, to be a lot of aerials, basically, yeah. because they were picking up... You yeah, know, well, that was a lot of I, that was sound as well, because obviously yeah. sound. And a lot of the time, when I say cut, they couldn't hear me. They were too far away. <laughs> I mean, no, by the end yeah. of the... But they're half a mile away by the end of the take, mm. you know what I mean? And you can't walk with them because you can't watch or mm. listen to what they're doing properly because you're running with them. Mm. So you have to be static and you have to be where they're starting not or where they finish, but you can't be both. Mm. Talking about pre-planning, we're talking about rehearsing. You know, Roger's talking about pulling frames from uh, from shooting on a little video camera. Yet, there's an element here. Um, I imagine any movie you make, Sam. Yeah, well, I, if it doesn't work, I can cut around it. I can do something. I'm wondering when you're on, when you've got something. We could pick any of, of a number of scenes. There's a lot of movement and stuff, and I can't motivate this. Pull it. Does, it feels weird to motivate a, a a pull in or to switch to go from the side to the back. Is this something I imagine? Like sometimes on set, you're kind of like having to like, in your in the middle of a four minute five minute take, the two of you are having to step back and be like, okay, we have to. How are we going to restage this or refigure out the geography here because we can't cut around. You know, it is what it is. Well, I, I think yes. I mean, that's very well put. You know, you are constantly trying to judge whether the movement of the camera is justified or unjustified and it has to come from within the scene so and you're operating on a number of levels you, you know sometimes it is just as simple as the the, dis, the you know the they're walking through an orchard you have to go through the door after them out of the walled orchard down the hill they split up when they go through the farmhouse you follow one of them you let the other one reappear later these sorts of things stage themselves to a degree once you've worked out them the geography of them and their journey but then at other times like for example uh there's a scene in which one of them gets wounded um the camera does circle them a couple of times and that is an emotional choice mm. they don't move the camera's moving but something's happening to them that you want reflected in the way the camera's responding. So there's that too. Then you've got um, the movements of the camera that take you from very subjective to putting the camera in space so you understand the geography of where everything is. And a good example of that would be crossing the canal 
he walks down the edge of the bridge you start on his feet and the camera shifts over it was actually on a wire so eventually you see him in wide shot in profile looking straight down the canal and you see and understand exactly where the lock house is and that's important because that's where the sniper is he's about to start shooting at him um, but then you've also got to get back across the bridge, drop down onto the towpath and, you know, approach the lock, the lock house with him. So the dance of the camera there is storytelling, really. You're both showing us your, your, the jeopardy, the balance he has to have in order to cross it, but also this vast space around him that seems to be empty, building tension as to whether there is or isn't someone there. And each one of those scenes, each one of those moments has a different set of rules. And there is no one rule that governs everything. Otherwise, we'd just be following him or we'd just be in wide shot. Yeah, right. And it's it, that judgment. You have to be hand in glove. You know, Roger and I have to be, because it's just a sense of what might or might not be right and what we've just done prior to that and what the movie might need. You want the film to breathe in and breathe out. You can't always be breathing in, you know. You can't always be hard charging, running straight ahead. There are very one of the things I'm proudest of in the film is the quiet parts of the film. The the the, the because when the movie goes quiet, it's very very quiet, silent, long stretches with no dialogue at all, and and um, I think that's one of the things I it weirdly felt I learned a bit more about doing the Bond movies is 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 how to you 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 can't have incessant action you can't be on the move all the time so it was trying to find that balance in the way the camera related to the actors um all the time um in a way that just felt right to both of us our, our gut instinct really I think that's what you last said I think so much of it is a gut instinct I mean remember when we first worked together on Jarhead you know, Sam said it was all handheld, apart from a few shots at the end. And sometimes we would be going through it, and I would say, "Well, why don't we camera?" And, and Sam would go, "No, no, we can't do that. That's not that's not right." Or or Sam would say, "Why don't we crane down off this berm or see them in a wide shot?" And I go, "No, no, I can't do that." <laughs> it was really good, you know, because you can. You know, I think a lot of films now, frankly, get too fancy. Mm. They get carried away with what you can do and not what actually fits the story. Uh, you talked about you've talked about this a few different times about the uh, the choice to to go to go gray uh having to shoot under clouds um because you have to have consistency. I'm curious though within that were you thinking in terms of working within that uniform kind of natural or hopefully uniform uh natural light? Were you thinking of this film in terms of different sections in terms of uh, what I noticed for example is there's a couple times where they emerge from something and suddenly some things seem a little bit more crystal white. They seem like it seems like you and there's other parts where there's we can get into the nighttime stuff. Were you thinking about within this different sections of a, a different palette or a different way that you were going to represent that light? Yeah, I mean, some of that you'd say the white. I mean, some of that came from we went, we went to France and visited the Somme and there was one particular battlefield that still exists is kept as a sort of museum. We went to Vimy Ridge, but this other one I can't remember near Thiepville. And it's white chalk, which is part of the reason why we saw that and thought, wow, we start in the, the mud of, you know, um, of Vimy Ridge. And then, and then we go to this white, you know, we found reference images of it. And I say we saw the real place. And so that kind of informed that change of landscape. But, yeah, you think of things as an arc and obviously built into it is a late day going into evening and then it starts again in the morning so you've got things already built in but you're also aware i think that 
there are certain expectations of the first World War movie and you expect trenches and mud. Mm. Well, the movie starts where you expect it. But once they pass through No Man's Land, which is 20 minutes into the movie, you're suddenly in landscapes and colours and atmospheres that you don't expect. And that was very deliberate in the writing of the film. Quarries and orchards blossom, the natural world coming back again after a hard winter. In fact, nature kind of laughs in the face of these ants moving across it, you know, that that one of the things I, I, I feel felt very strongly about was that the natural world sort of ignores them in a way and is gonna survive long long after this destruction has disappeared. The 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 you know, the river sequence and the sequence in the woods. These are all uh, different atmospheres, very deliberate, you know, the the nighttime town, the, the lit only by fire. And and that the, each one of these things were conscious sort of, you know, it's like journeying through the various circles of hell. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yep. each one had a very different feeling. And so we were able to, and then we had some lucky breaks with the weather, you know, that, uh, you know, we had a weird soft sunlight that suddenly came out when we were in that white quarry. And one of the reasons that, you know, you say come out into the open space is the light shifted, um, but in a way that we hadn't planned. And it just was particularly, we were just lucky. Can we talk, because uh, we got to finish up, can we talk a little bit about, in context of some of these things, the nighttime in the fire. Um, my colleague is going to talk to Roger about, uh, Bill Deswitz is going to talk to Roger about how he did all of that on Monday because he <laughs> knocked it out of the park. I think we could talk about that. But I'm just wondering also, it seems as if when, I don't know how can I say this out of spoiler way, when the movie goes into night and he is in this certain mental state out of there, what is happening with the camera? What is happening with like Roger's lighting and what is happening mentally? The movie takes a break but it feels like when you talked about it wanting something a little bit dreamlike in this, it feels like that section and the fog and the haze of it, it's really Well, that was there. very deliberately a sort of hallucinatory um, section, partly because he's been knocked out. And when he wakes up, you don't know if he's alive or dead, if he's dreaming, he's, he's asleep, and whether he's awake, what time is it? Is it two days later, five days later? Where are we? And he himself doesn't know. He's lost his watch. He doesn't know what the time is. He doesn't know where he is. He's sort of forgotten what his mission is, almost. So there is that. But there's also a very deliberate choice at that point for the first time in the movie for the camera to detach from the character. And that was something we talked about. You know, uh, the camera leaves him behind and floats out of the window of the of the lockhouse and into this almost lunar landscape of, of destroyed buildings under flares that are traveling across. And so there's this sort of liquid light that moves across the ground, almost as if it's it's not there at all. Um, and that was something that we talked about, but it was, you know, like all these effects, um, extremely difficult to achieve <laughs> because <laughs> it was basically, you know, we had to time the flares, every one of them. We had constructed the landscape around him to throw the correct shadows. I mean, and to do that, we had to build models and the models had to have lights on them and we turned off all the lights in the room and we would light them with these. And so Roger really constructed that lighting rig to match the set, which was constructed to match the lighting rig. I mean, that's that's why this whole process was such a, you know, it's such a piece of teamwork really because Dennis Gassner, who designed that remarkable town set, mm. did so really almost as a as a giant lighting rig because he had to remove sections of wall so that the main light source of the town which is this vast burning church could light Schofield's journey as he moved through this these shattered streets 
Raj, I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, it's just a, it's in terms of your approach there. Well, so what Sam was saying it was like that after after uh, Schofield gets knocked out, we don't. He doesn't know. We don't know where we are. I think it's the one time I felt we could do this ostentatious shot, if you like, going out the window. And we talked about it, and Sam went, yeah, yeah, why not? That does make sense, because it's the moment, maybe you're in a dream, you know, maybe it's his imagination, and then he walks into shot, and it's just, we wanted to create this kind of surreal world without coming out of the film going too far. But, you know. but we also had a sort of quiet rule, which is that we were never going to go backwards. Yeah. And, and the one time I got stuck mm. was if he's gone up the steps in the lock house, mm. he has to come back down them. Mm. But he doesn't because we go out the window while he goes down the stairs. And and there's that feeling, that slightly threatening feeling that the movie accumulates this sort of because it's caught it's constantly moving forward. And it's never it, it won't allow you to go back. It won't allow you in a way to to look backwards. It, it is constantly um uh pushing through space and, and that was something that we wanted to observe as well. Uh last one I'm curious. Um, you have a, an amazing editor on this film, you know, which is it's a tough job to be the the, the editor on this. Uh, I'm sure in terms of what people think of because they're, they're they give these long takes. I'm curious though how much it seems like Lee Smith was something that you're working with this the editor because while you're shooting because you got to figure out like I imagine each take is a little different. Yes. Right. Each and and there's an element of which one you're going to use and how you're going to transition it. And I imagine there's even an element of like you kind of have to land or start in a particular way. Is was there? I wonder. It's probably an interesting collaboration uh, with an editor. Lee, on this Lee one. was an absolutely. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Because you know you think, well, what's an editor doing if there's no edits in the movie? There's no cuts in the movie. But he was a he was a crucial part of this process. It was because he was putting the movie together. Um, he was giving feedback very quickly about which takes he felt were the most successful because we had to match to that take or sometimes the next day. So we had to choose what take we was going to be in the movie almost immediately we had shot it. So that's the first thing. So he has an incredibly good sense of performance and rhythm. Um, he's also a great eye. So he tended to choose the one that also look best the camera mover you know so he and roger were often in sync about what their favorite takes were without really knowing that but on top of that lee also has done sound in the past so he would put together a very basic sound mix he would put temp score on it he would make it he would take it as far down the road as quickly as he could and feed it back to me and i would watch it you know in my room in the evening and it would give me the confidence about the rhythm of the next scene because in that way, because we're shooting in sequence, you get five minutes of movie, then 10 minutes, then 50 minutes, then 20 minutes, 25. And you watch the movie emerge out of the mist very quickly as we were shooting it. And so he was really, in, you know, making it as we went. Um, and then I would send back notes and maybe change a bit of score here. Or maybe we had one or two disagreements about um, what take to use, but no more than that. On the whole, we were completely in sync. And his sense of what his, his judgment of performance is remarkable. But it is ironic that the Oscar winner, the, the last editor to win the Oscar for Dunkirk, 
uh, his next movie was a movie where there are no edits. <laughs> and uh, I reminded him of this several times. <laughs> Is that something you had to be aware of, Roger, while you were doing this? Were you, or was the stitching and the transition something that was so worked out? Or is that something? It was worked out beforehand, yeah. uh-huh. by and large, wasn't it? I mean, more, but maybe one or two. Mm-hmm. No, actually, all of them. What am I saying? Okay. Yeah, they had to be. And then, as, as Sam says, he had to choose the take. I mean, I think one day we did two shots on the day and he had to choose the take before we did the second talk mm. take yeah, second shot because you have to it's the pace it's you know everything has to be exactly the same in terms of the movement of the camera yeah well congratulations to you both it's a thank it's you a, it's a wonderful thank film you. it's really it's really uh i cannot wait to go and watch the the, the nighttime sequence again might go to the seven o'clock <laughs> <laughs>